This morning, we're continuing our Why Work series that we've been in the last couple weeks. We started a few weeks ago with talking about how God made us to be creative workers. God made us to work. Last week, we talked about how things have gone badly wrong with the many ways that work goes wrong in this world and the ways the Lord equips us to carry on. Today, we're going to talk about contentment. We're going to focus on contentment in our work. And this is a theme that I think matters for all of our callings, whether we're working full-time or part-time or whether we're studying or whether we've retired and are volunteering on the side or whether we're staying at home with the kids. In any calling, any circumstance, contentment is important for us as believers. Today we'll hear what the Bible has to say about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll read Ecclesiastes chapter 2 from verse 17 to verse 26. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless." So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless." A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word for us today. Thirteen Conversations About One Thing is a movie that follows the lives of several New Yorkers. Troy is an ambitious district attorney. He is an aggressive prosecutor. He is good at what he does, and he usually wins. He's proud of his hard work and of where it's gotten him. But one day, one night, he's driving along an empty street, and he runs into someone. And this district attorney, this successful prosecutor, he gets out of his car in a panic, And he looks down at the body on the street that isn't moving, and he looks around, and there's no witnesses. And he gets back in his car, and he drives off as fast as he can. And as he goes to work the next day and the next, Troy realizes that all of his work is meaningless and empty. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't want to do it anymore. The work that inspired him before seems fake and empty now. Beatrice is an idealistic young cleaning woman. She cleans apartments in a high-end building. She likes her job. She takes extra time to help her her co-workers out. She likes to make up stories about people as she cleans their apartments. She goes the extra mile to make sure that every single place that she cleans is just how their client wants it. She loves making people's lives better. She's a positive person. But she's the lady that Troy, the district attorney, hits that night. And a passerby comes, she goes to the hospital. After a few days there, she's okay. 
But as she's recovering, she finds out that one of her favorite clients suddenly canceled their contract. He thinks they stole stuff. He can't find some of his valuables that were outlying on a countertop. And Beatrice had gone the extra mile, and she put them away in the drawer where she knew they belonged. But her client hadn't even bothered to look. He just figured, those cleaning ladies, they'd stolen his valuables. Beatrice is devastated. She's poured her heart and her soul into this job, and it doesn't mean anything. Gene is an upper-middle-aged middle manager. He sacrificed everything for his career. He let his wife walk out on him years ago. His only son is on the street doing drugs. He sacrificed all of his relationships to climb the career ladder. And finally, finally, the vice president position is open in his area, and he thinks he's going to get it. And all of his sacrifices are going to finally mean something. And then upper management goes a different direction. They hire a young hotshot who's got some fresh ideas, and Gene is out. His career's at a dead end. Everything he worked for is gone. All the sacrifices he made are meaningless. Real meaning is hard to find. Real lasting contentment is hard to hold on to. That's true in pretty much all of our lives, and sometimes it's especially true in our work. All work under the sun is meaningless. Our work is never enough to make us content. It's never good enough. So much goes wrong with work that it's almost impossible to stay content. Things go south. Our career dreams fall apart. Work, on, work keeps on demanding more and more and more from us. These days, our cell phones have us on a leash, and no matter where we are or what day it is or what time it is, people can get hold of us. Unless you throw your phone in a drawer or something, you're never really off work anymore these days. And even if you do that, you know it's in there vibrating and calling to you. And even when work goes well, even when things are the best they can be, the meaning, the prestige, the success, the position, it's never enough. Enough is never enough. We work and we work and we work, and our work is still uncertain. It's still meaningless. We don't know what the results will be, and everything under the sun comes to an end. And that's what Ecclesiastes tells us, right? All the work that is done under the sun is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This book of Ecclesiastes has a certain, a certain despairing honesty to it. The author tells us that he hates life because all of his work and all of his toil was meaningless. He works and he works and he works, and then he just has to leave the products of the work to whoever comes after him. And who knows whether that person's going to be wise or a fool. You can pour your life into your work, and the day will come that you just have to give it up and walk away. What do we get for all our anxious striving under the sun? We get pain. We get grief. We get long days and restless nights. All our grabbing and grasping, all of our efforts just leave us in pain and empty. We look at things under the sun, and it's all meaningless. All of it. But Ecclesiastes has two perspectives on this life. Often in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer looks at how things are under the sun. 
This is a perspective looking at the world on the surface level, looking at how things are day to day. It's under the sun, and it's meaningless. Ecclesiastes often uses a word that's sometimes translated as vanity, or it can be translated meaninglessness. In this perspective, everything is just a breath of air. It's here, and then it's gone. Our work doesn't matter. But Ecclesiastes also has what you might call an above-the-sun perspective. And that perspective looks at the world with the eyes of a believer. It looks at how God made the world, and it sees meaning even in our toil. Under the sun, in the world apart from God, there is nothing. But above the sun, we step into the presence of the Lord, and above the sun, the writer of Ecclesiastes sees God's creation order, and he sees how that gives meaning to even our most meaningless times. Above the sun, God gives meaning to our work. In the first part of the verses that we read for today, in verses 17 to 23, the writer goes on and on about how everything is meaningless. And in verse 24 to 26, undo those first few verses. In some ways, verses 24 to 26 are the very heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. And these verses show us that work is a gift from God. From the hand of God, we get all good things. Without God's grace, we would have nothing. But in God's grace, we can eat, we can drink, and we can find meaning in our work. The NIV there in verse 24 says we can find satisfaction in our work, but the actual word there is goodness. You could translate that a lot of ways. You could say God gives us to find goodness in our work, to find meaning in our work, to find satisfaction in our work, to find contentment in our work. Because of God's grace for us, and only because of that, we can find meaning and contentment in our work. This passage is a celebration of the life we have as God's creatures. We're created to enjoy life with God in the way that He designed us to. Last week, we talked about some of the many, many, many ways that work goes wrong, and we shouldn't forget about that. We shouldn't pretend that work is always good or that work is always great or that it's always wonderful. But we also, as believers, shouldn't be content with an under-the-sun perspective. There is real value in work, and there is contentment that we can find whether our jobs are perfect or not. So God gives us the opportunity to find satisfaction in our work. God made us to work and to enjoy our work. When we work with our hands or with our minds, we're doing something that God made us to do. And whether we're doing paid labor or we're in school studying or we're taking care of the kids at home or we're volunteering, whatever we're doing, God calls us to do that well and to find contentment in it. Matthew Crawford is an interesting guy. He's a mix of a motorcycle mechanic and a writer. Not too many people you you see who do both of those. But his main job is to fix motorcycles. He owns a little shop, he and a few other guys, and they they fix motorcycles. Have the motorcycle come in, figure out what's wrong with it, fix it, sometimes fix it again and again. They work hard, but they also see the benefits of their labor. And Crawford writes about how he finds that tremendously satisfying. One of the favorite parts of his job is when someone comes in with a motorcycle that's finally been fixed, 
They come in, they test it out, and they start it up, and they rev it up. And because if you're on a motorcycle, it's just how it works. They rev it up again and again and again, and it works. And these guys grin because they haven't been able to be out on their bike for a few weeks, and they can see their weekend taking shape, and it is going to be wonderful. Muddy and messy, but wonderful. And so Matthew helps these guys load up the motorcycle onto their trucks usually, and as they drive off, he stands there wiping his hand on a rag, and he just feels content. He's not changing the world, but he's enjoying his work. He's enjoying fixing these motorcycles, and he's enjoying the benefits that it brings to his customers. There is real meaning and real contentment to be found even in fixing motorcycles. And if there's meaning to be found in fixing motorcycles, there's meaning and contentment to be found in just about any line of work. In almost any job, yes, even your job, in almost any job, you can find ways to be content with what you're doing. So be content in your work. Be content with the goodness that's there. We don't all have to change the world every single day. We don't all have to do everything. We just need to do good work at the work that God has given us. And then we can rest in deep contentment because we're doing what God has called us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we just settle. It doesn't mean you just find any old job and you kind of put your time in and that's okay. Next week, I'll be talking more about some ways that God transforms our work and that our work can be used to transform the world. So come back next year to hear some challenges, or next week. But this week, this week, God made us to work. God gives us the opportunity to be satisfied in what we do. Even in our work, we can rest in gratitude and goodness. And for this week, let that be enough. Be glad for the work God's given you. Give thanks for it. Be grateful that God made us people who can find satisfaction in our work. But God didn't just make us to be people who work. Yes, he gives us the opportunity to find satisfaction in our work, but he also gives us the opportunity to rest from our work. I spent a few years living in a remote part of Africa, and we worked with a number of tribes who were slowly and then quickly becoming more and more Christian. But all the tribes we worked with there, they insisted that you work seven days a week. And these were pretty much all farmers. They worked with hand tools. And so throughout the year, they'd be out in their fields all the time, breaking up the ground by hand, planting each seed one by one by one weeding the fields, going out and harvesting them, bringing the produce to market. It was a lot of work. And if you were at all healthy, if you could stand up, you were supposed to be out in the fields. And it didn't matter if it was 90 or 95 or 100 or 110. You were out there and you were working every single day. No exceptions, no excuses. And then along come we Christians and we Christians have this crazy idea. I mean, it is, it's crazy. You rest one day of the week? One day out of seven, you don't work? That is nuts. Christians are lazy. Who would ever want to do that? 
How will you ever have enough food if you rest one day, even in harvest time? No. Lazy Christians. For people there, having a day off every week was a real problem for conversion. Now, more and more here in North America, having an actual day of rest sounds crazy. Sounds impossible. Sounds stupid. How are you going to keep up if you take a day off every week? Our cell phones are always with us, and people expect us to be always on. Students have to spend a lot of time studying on Sunday because they've got sports stuff, and they've got work stuff, and they've got school stuff that cover all the other days. And a lot of us, you know, we just work a few hours on the weekend just to catch up. Or Sunday afternoon or evening, we pop open our work email, and we respond to a few emails just just so Monday isn't so bad. Now, in the not-so-distant past, we used to be way too legalistic about Sabbath observance. We made it a burden. We had to keep all these rules. There were these things that we couldn't do and these things that we had to do. And often, our day of rest became more about a day of keeping the rules. A day that should have been refreshment and encouragement and renewal was more about what can or can't we do. And if we do this, are the neighbors going to talk? And we don't want the neighbors to talk. I think we've gotten over that for the most part, but I think we've swung all the way too far in the other direction. And we still haven't figured out how to enjoy the gift of rest that God has given us. Now, I'm not standing up here and setting up a new set of rules and saying these are the rules for Sunday and everybody has to keep them. Sabbath, I think, can look different for different people. For people who are doctors or other medical professionals, for us as ministers, Sunday can't always be a day off. But I think for all of us, whatever our calling, whatever stage of life we're at, I think all of us could stand a reminder that God made us to rest. God made us to rest and intentionally, regularly taking a break is a means of deliverance. When it's done right, practicing the Sabbath is a reminder that we have been delivered. If you can never rest, if you can never rest, you are a slave. Maybe you're a slave to your employer who keeps wanting more and more and more and more. Maybe you're a slave to our consumer culture that keeps demanding that we buy more and more and more and more no matter how much we have. Maybe you're a slave to your own self-image and you just have to work so that you feel good about yourself. But I can tell you that if you don't practice Sabbath in real, regular ways, you are a slave to something. And that something is probably going to abuse and use you and not care for your well-being. Practicing Sabbath in some form means declaring our freedom. It means us saying, in God we have been delivered from the need to save ourselves And in so many different ways, work can so often become slavery. But resting from our work is a sign to us that God has delivered us. It's a sign that we trust God to provide for us, even when we're not quite sure how that's going to work. And it's a sign that we trust God so much that we are willing to put ourselves in his hands, even when we aren't sure what the outcome will be. It was amazing to a lot of the Christians we knew in Africa that even when they stopped working that one day of the week, they still had the same amount of crops at the end of the year. Sometimes they did even better somehow. 
And that became a witness for the faith that when you rest, your life is better. When you rest and you find renewal in Jesus Christ, your life is better. God made us to work, but he also made us to rest. And again, I don't have hard, fast, sharp rules for you today. I think we can have some difference in the solutions we find. But God, God gives us rest, and let's not pass up that gift. Part of the way that we find contentment in our work is by putting the work down, by going home, and by resting. And God, God does provide for our needs even when we aren't quite sure how that's going to work out. By and large, here today, we have what we need. Certainly, most of us here have enough to meet the basic needs of life. Now, of course, we could always, always use a little bit more. But really, God provides for our needs. And if we can't be content with what we have right now, we won't be content with the next thing that we get either. There's an old story about a fisherman who goes out to fish one day, and he doesn't catch anything for most of the day. But then toward the end of the day, as he's about to wrap up, he catches a big fish. And as he's pulling the fish into the boat, the fish starts talking to him. And by the way, this isn't a true story. Like all fish stories, there's some exaggeration involved. But anyway, the fish starts talking, and he says, I'm not really a fish. I'm an enchanted prince. I can't get out of my spell, but I've got some power, and if you let me go, I'll give you a wish. Now, the fisherman is kind of a wise man, and he doesn't want to eat something that's talking to him anyway, so he says, just get out of here. That's fine. He goes home, and he tells his wife, the craziest thing happened to me out there today. And his wife hears the story and says, what? You didn't take a wish? Get back in your boat and get out there and give the fish a wish. So the fisherman goes out, and he yells for the fish, and the fish comes up, and he says, we need a new house. Give us a new house. And the fish says, okay, that's fine. Go home. And the guy goes home, and his little shack is replaced by a delightful little cottage. And they're happy with it for a couple days, and then his wife says, we need more space. Go out, find the fish, get a bigger house. So the guy goes out, he calls to the fish, the fish comes again, the guy says, we need a mansion. The fish says, okay, you got a mansion, go home. The mansion is good enough for a few days. Again, the guy has to go back out, call up the fish, and say, fish, we need a castle. The fish says, fine, go home. The castle's good enough for a few days. Again, the wife sends the husband out, and he goes, and he shamefacedly says, the castle isn't big enough. We need a palace fit for an emperor. And the fish says, okay, go home. One more time, the fisherman gets sent out, and he says, you know, it's a nice palace, but I have one more request. Can you give us the power of God? And the fish just says, go home. And the fisherman goes home and he finds his wife back in their first little hut, back in her original circumstances, just as discontent as she was when she had a palace. If we aren't content with what we have to live on right now, we may never be able to be content no matter what else we get. If we can't be content with enough, there will never, ever be enough. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and will take nothing out of it. And so says 1 Timothy, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. True contentment is remarkably countercultural these days. To live an ordinary contented life is a radical move in our culture. So be radical. Be ordinary. Be radically content with what God has given you. Your work can never give you enough if you don't find enough in what God has already given you. Now, I know some of us struggle to make ends meet, and if that's the case, talk to the deacons. We'll do everything we can to meet your needs in a sustainable way. But for the overwhelming majority of us, God has given us way, way more than what we need. And so we can find satisfaction in our work. We can and should work hard to provide for ourselves and our families. But ultimately, it's God who provides what we need. And so we shouldn't get all focused on building up treasure for ourselves. God provides everything we need. And we see that most clearly in Jesus Christ. When we were lost and alone, when we were needy and poor, Jesus came to us. God provided Jesus to live, to die, to rise again so that we could have everything that we need forever. And if God didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will God not, along with Jesus, give us everything that we need? In the movie, 13 Conversations About One Thing, those characters do find some kind of contentment. Troy, the district attorney, finds out that his hit-and-run incident didn't actually kill anybody, and so he just rejoices in what a lucky man he is. Beatrice has a, has a stranger smile to her on the street, and somehow, somehow that makes life okay again. Gene loses his job, but then he realizes that being kind to other people can give a deeper meaning to his life. They all climb back into some kind of equilibrium, some kind of meaning in their day-to-day existence. But none of those meanings have any staying power. They find something, but never enough to give lasting contentment. And that's all the world has to give. The writer of Ecclesiastes is right. Under the sun, all of our work is meaningless. But in the Lord, in the Lord we have enough. In the Lord we can be content in our work. In the Lord we can rest from our work. And in our Lord Jesus we have everything we need. All of these things are gifts from God to us. And godliness with contentment is great gain.